Welcome back to the Recovery Podcast from Buena Vista. Um, I'm sitting here with Bobby Corning, and uh, I'm Frank Eisenhower. Bob, how was your how was your Thanksgiving, man? My Thanksgiving was good, brother. Uh, hung out with the fam, the pups, ate a bunch of good food. Yeah, just thankful you. Good man, it was great. Where I, were uh, you? I was in Oahu, wow. swimming with sea turtles and uh, spending time with family. It was it was uh, mystical, man. It was totally magical. Great it's beautiful. Time. Yes, yeah. Um, so uh, what do what are we what are we doing today? We, I was we thinking kinda... uh, we get into your story, okay. get into your story, kind of beginning beginning to end, okay. um, why you're sitting here today, and everything that recovery's brought you. Okay. So right. let's get into it. Uh, why did you get into recovery, or what happened? What was what kind of led you to the doors of finding a <clears throat> new way of living and to find this life to where you sit today? Well, you know, uh, you know, I was in active addiction for for 20 years, man. Um, I mean, hardcore active addiction. You know, we're talking shooting, you know, opiates and cocaine and stuff like that, and booze. Um, but you know, uh, that came to an abrupt end in 2015. Um, I, I picked up some felony charges, and you know, I wasn't. Uh, I had really made peace with dying as a drug addict, man. Um, you know, especially at that point, I was. It was full-blown meth addict I overcame if you want to call it that uh opiate addiction and uh I I went from hardcore opiate addiction to uh straight meth for for 10 years man and you know like I said I had made peace with dying like that okay Frankie at the at the age of 14 you had some some realization some traumatic stuff that came up you know do you want to you want to dive a little bit deeper into that yeah, man. Um, you know, at at, uh, at fourteen, uh, I learned that um, my my stepdad was actually not my real father. Growing up, I was, you know, kind of uh, made to believe that that my stepdad was my real dad. Um, at age fourteen, uh, my mom came to me and she's like, "Hey, Frankie, uh, you know, uh, your grandparents want to want to see you," and I thought that was really strange, being that I just saw them the day before or a couple days prior at one of my Little League baseball games, you know. Um, and I looked at her, I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, well, your real, your real dad's parents found you and they want to see us, or they want to see you. Um, I, I didn't know what that meant. Um, so she kind of went into a little bit of detail and she told me that my dad had died in a fire, um, my real dad. And, uh, you know, she said, your, parent, your grandparents want to see you in Chicago. I'm sending you back there to go see him. And, uh, you know, so here I am 14 and, uh, it really my life at that point got turned upside down. My identity did because I thought, you know, this is my life. You know, I lived in a really good neighborhood, had, you know, great family life. Um, stepdad was dad to me. And all of a sudden I have a real dad that I didn't know about. So, uh, I fly back to Chicago and I'm, you know, thinking I'm going to go meet these strange people who I have no idea who they are, right? So uh, they picked me up at the airport, and I recognized my aunt, um, and I recognized my uncle, and I was like, wow, okay, I remember you. So we get in the car, drive back to the house, and we go back to my grandparents' house where as soon as they opened the front door, like the smell hit me in the face, and I remembered everything. I remember walking up the stairs. The carpet was the same, the back porch, um, 
my grandparents were there. She looked the same. I mean, she was a little old Italian lady, man. She had white hair, but she had like this brown streak from all the cigarettes she smoked that went up her upper forehead, right? Uh, anyway, wearing her house slippers, her house dress, same thing, you know. Um, so that was really strange, man. And, you know, throughout the trip, um, things surfaced um, that really just really blew me, you know, blew me back, man. You know, they told me that my, my real dad had got murdered in a mob hit. And, uh, you know, my mom was trying to protect me. She told me that he got killed in a fire. She never even told me about the guy because, that, you know, she was trying to protect me because it was a, you know, a pretty severe um, crime back then. So, I mean, still, it's a severe crime. But, um, and then I, they proceeded to tell me that I had a brother and a sister from my dad, so, you know, here I am, my identity is flipped, man. So I come back to Arizona after learning all this stuff, and I didn't know who I was anymore. You know, I, I thought I was part of this, you know, this Italian family. They're all full-blown Italian people, and, you know, my dad, my stepdad was just a totally different person, you know, and uh, he, he was law enforcement. My stepdad's law enforcement, my real dad's mob, you know. So The two don't mix. Who am I? Yeah. So, you know, that's when I really picked up um, booze, man, and really started drinking a lot and smoking a lot of pot and, and running away from from those emotions and those feelings, man. They were, for a 14-year-old boy, that's, that, that's heavy, you know? It's a so, lot. Yeah. What do you think, so when all this stuff came out and you started, started dabbling with booze and pot, what did that, in the time, what did that do for you? What did the booze do for you? What did the pot do for you? You know, it, it just made me uh, numb, I guess you could say. Just kind of, it, it was it was neutral zone. I wasn't, I was, it was neutral. You know what I mean? It really made me kind of like numb to those emotions. I got, you know, I started getting in a lot of fights. And, you know, um, I mean, back then it was a whole lot different than it is now. But, like, I mean... It, it it made me numb, man. You know, for sure. So, how did it how did it progress from there? So you know, I like think what happened between, you know, because I know your story, and uh, I think it's important. Like it started with pot, it started with booze. Then, but what was like the moment that it switched over? Uh, I think it was probably like the first bump of cocaine. You know. Yeah. And then. Uh, it progressed, you know, I, I went through the psychedelic uh, stage, you know, a lot of acid, a lot of mushrooms, um, and then it progressed to to uh, cocaine, and then I dabbled with meth a little bit, and only time I dabbled with meth was when I got so drunk that I had to sober up, and I'd do it, and I hated myself for three days, and then I'd go back to drinking again, just that cycle, and then at 21, um, this drug dealer came over and was dropping off a bunch of mushrooms and marijuana for me. And he pulled out this little black bag and he's like, Hey, can I take a shot? I'm like, yeah, go ahead. Like I had no idea what he was talking about. So he pulled out the syringe and this vial of morphine and injected it in front of me. And the way he looked after that, I was like, wow, what's that? He's like, it's morphine. I'm like, what's it do? He's like, it makes you feel really good. And me and this guy had a lot of stuff in common. His dad was murdered when he was younger. And, uh, you know, I kind of looked up to this guy. He was, you know, he 
lot of money. He's a drug dealer, so he had a lot of money, good-looking girls, nice car, all that stuff. And um, so he he said, "You want a shot?" And I said, "Absolutely, let's do it." And he, you know, he I said, "I'm scared of." Of, of needles though he goes well I'll just put it in your muscle just give it a shot you know and and, I, and he did it and uh, I felt at peace for the first time since since I was a kid man and that was uh, that was that was the beginning of that and uh, it that led from you know intramuscular use to intravenous use to before I knew it, I was physically addicted to this stuff, and I was buying this stuff by the box. It was called uh, Nalbufine, Nubane. It's like a, it's, it's a strong opiate that they they give to you like before like heavy du- heavy duty surgeries to sedate you and mild like painkiller, sedative, whatever. Uh, you know, it started with that, and then I started get you know taking Xanax with him. He was giving me bottles and bottles of Xanax and and, and the sleeves of Xanax and Valiums and Somas, and that. You know, my, my routine was wake up in the morning, take a shot of Nubane, pop a few pills, um, start drinking, smoke weed, do some blow. And, you know, I was doing seven, eight substance a day just to maintain um, being well, you know. Um, so, you know, after about three months of this, I'm, I, you know, I, I was like, wow, I, I need to quit this stuff. I'm getting track marks on my arms. I'm, you know, I'm starting to show signs that I'm intravenously using uh you know opiates um so i called my mom and i'm like hey i need help she's like what do you mean i said well i'm i'm using drugs and i need help getting off of them she's like okay so she came over and i told what i was doing and she tried to get me into uh at the time it was charter hospital so it was um it was an iop and so I knew nothing about recovery at this point. And here I am, 21 years old, three months into my opiate addiction and, and benzo addiction, booze addiction, everything. Um, so I go to this IOP and I'm sitting in this group and I was so clueless. I said, uh, I go, how long am I gonna be an addict for? And she said, you're gonna be an addict for the rest of your life. And that broke my heart. Like, I didn't know what, like, I thought it was just, you know, like you got fixed and it went away. And uh, she said, you have a disease, and you're going to battle this for the rest of your life. And, uh, you know, I just remember clips of things she said, and one of the things she said also was, uh, you know, relapse is part of this disease. And I heard relapse is part of this disease. I'm like, green light to just get high, you know. And uh, that was it. That was the last time I tried treatment at 21. Uh, I got in trouble with the law a little bit here and there, but nothing big time. Spent the night in jail, you know, kicked um, opiates in jail once or twice, but like for a day, nothing big. Um, 2004 comes around. I'm on 175 milligrams of methadone. Um, I'm shooting methadone. I'm shooting heroin. I'm shooting cocaine. I'm trying to shoot Xanax. I'm trying to shoot whatever it is. Just I'm a pincushion at this point. Shot out. 2004 comes around, I can't take it anymore. I'm spending 10 to 12 hours on a toilet in a bathroom trying to find veins anywhere in my body, feet, neck, thighs, wherever, you name it, neck. Um, so I called my mom once again after, this is 10 years we're talking, and I tell her I need help. So she um, proceeds to look for a treatment center for me in California. This is 2004. Uh, I called, I called the center and, uh, you know, I told them I went to come in for, for treatment. 
and they asked me what drugs I was using. I said I was on 175 milligrams of methadone, benzos, this, that, and the other thing. And they're like, okay, well, uh, off the record, you need to get off the methadone. I'm like, well, how do I do that? And they said, well, get back on heroin for about a month and give us a call. That's a true story. So I, I did that. I bought a big bottle of morphine pills and transitioned from methadone to morphine for about a month. Then I went into treatment. Um, But, you know, I was that guy that we all know in treatment that you wanted to slap the shit out of. You know, the entitled, uh, enabled. Ungrateful. Ungrateful, just little jerk, you know. Um, it probably didn't hit you yet. Like, it probably didn't hit you in the way of, like, this is going to be the rest of my life. At least I know for me when somebody told me I was an addict. Yeah. Because I remember going to treatment, they were like, because I went to treatment to get off opiates, and I was going to figure out how to do some cocaine and drink on the weekends. That yeah, was yeah. my plan. Yeah. Um, and they're like, no, this is this is the rest of your life. I was like, no way, not yeah. me. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, like, I, you know, I went to a bougie place. I went to uh, Orange County. I went okay. to a place called Hope by the Sea. Yeah. In 2004. And uh, I left there on more prescription drugs than I went on. I was on 24 milligrams of Suboxone. I was on Adderall. I was on Clonopin. I was on Mood Stable. I was on everything. I came back. The day I got back from treatment, I went and got an eight ball of blow and went to the bar. So, like, now I was like, oh, I, was, I didn't have to shoot up anymore. So I was like, yeah. you know, I was still medicated off the Suboxone and everything else. Um, so that really, that lasted for about a year. Um, and then I was introduced to meth. Um, where all those prescription drugs were pushed aside. I quit doing the Suboxone. I quit doing the Clonopin. I quit drinking. I quit doing everything because I just fell in love with meth. That was a d whole different lifestyle. Um, I really liked meth a I lot. Meth. Yeah. Uh, so. I mean, what are some of your best stories when you were on meth? Oh, God. It's all X-rated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't share that on here, you guys. <laughs> Uh, get at me, I'll, I'll, I'll let you all know. Yeah, about it. No, legendary. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Uh, anyway, so, you know, um, meth was a different demon for me, man. The, the, the best way I could put it was that the addiction I had prior with the opiates and the benzos was more like being held captive in a prison. Um, meth, to me, was being possessed by some demonic shit. You know, like, I, it wasn't me anymore. Before, I was... I was literally being held captive on meth. I was somebody else. As soon as I put that shit in my body, I became possessed. And, uh, you know, I ended up getting in a lot of trouble with the law often. You know, I'd get pulled over with stuff in the car, with guns, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, I got put on probation a few times. I couldn't comply. Uh, I got sent to prison the first time in 2008. Um, got out, stayed sober for about three months. And then I thought, hey, you know, like we were saying earlier, I, I can just do it on the weekends. You know, I, I thought, you know, I could do it on the weekends. And uh, I did it on the weekend, and that became another eight-year binge um, until I got hemmed up again up in Yavapai County with firearms, aggravated DUI, and internal possession of uh, methamphetamine. So that's really, um, you know, I was looking at some severe time. I was looking at six to 15 years. That's when things really hit me in the face, man, that like, I'm not getting out of this. I'm gonna have to go back to prison. And I really didn't want to. I was 30, 
39 when this all transpired. I went in when I was 40, um, almost 41. Let's get into that. Let's, uh, 41 years old. Yeah. Off a 10-year meth binge. Yeah. Um, and here you are in prison. Yeah. What was, what was the thought? So let me back up a little bit. So when I, ca- I, I when I got, in, you know, sent in the county, when I got picked up initially on that stuff, I called my family. And this is, this is where things really turned around for me. And this is what I try to tell parents that are enabling and coming to their child's aid who was calling them from jail or, hey, I need, you know, just manipulating, right? That was me for years. Um, so I'm in the county jail in Yavapai County, and I call my family. Uh, I called one of my cousins, Polly, who, uh, Polly, if you listen to this, you played a big part in my recovery, just, just saying. Um, anyway, I called Polly. I said, hey, Polly, I need help. I'm in jail. You know, and, he, and he'd watched me for years just falling apart and just putting my mom through hell. And, you know, he, I remember what he said. He goes, fuck you, Frank. He goes, you got yourself into this. Get yourself out of it. And hung up the phone and blocked me. So that was a wake-up call. I called my mom. I said, Mom, I need help. She goes, Frankie, I'm done. I ain't helping you anymore. And she hung up the phone. And then uh, I remembered one phone number from a friend of mine from high school we, I mean, we, we were really good friends. And I called, the only number I could remember, uh, I called his work. And uh, his wife answered the phone. It was at last to catering. She answered the phone. I go, hey, Christine, I need help. I'm in trouble. I need help. She goes, all right, call back in 15 minutes. So I called back in 15 minutes, and they had blocked the number. That was it. Everybody cut me off. I, had, I, I was done. Um, so I get out of jail. I got bonded out, and I swore to God uh, I'd never get high again. And within 40 hours, so I, I, I did the Hail Mary prayer. I, I said, God, please get me out of here. I'll never get high again. 40 hours later, I'm walking back in through the same jail in Yavapai County with two new felony charges. Three, no, two new felony, uh, uh, prohibited possessor and aggravated DUI, and that was it. And I got out on bond. I fought the case for a year and a half. Suicidal. Um, I thought my life was going to end. I was looking at six to fifteen years. Um, looking back on it, man, that's the cool part because, you know, these these individuals that have like zero hope and they think that shit's just going down the tubes. And in my in my perspective, God was playing such. He was already moving things around. He was already putting things in my favor. He's already planting these seeds and. Um, making these revelations to me. Um, so like when I finally got sentenced and I, and, and all the, so at my last court date, I did these continuances for about 18 months fighting this case. Um, at the very last continuance, uh, the prosecutor stepped forward and said, your honor, we have some evidence in favor of Mr. Eisenhower. Right. Um, so she had, or he had come up with dash cam footage that, didn't match up with the police report so they had a they didn't drop the charge they they lessened the charge from a prohibited possessor which was a mandatory five years for a first-time offender but i had priors so they 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 dropped the prohibited possessor to misconduct with a firearm which is still a felony four but it didn't come with mandatory time then i still had to do the time for the aggravated dui which is only four months in doc um so i you know that was that was God right there. And, you know, when I the first day I was in the county jail, 
and I sobered up, you know, I mean, the next day I woke up and, uh, feeling totally hopeless knowing I was going to DOC. Um, that's when it happened, man. That's when God like revealed himself to me, like full blown laughing hysterically, crying hysterically out loud. People must've thought I was crazy because I was like, I was vocal in my cell. And that was like, that was a pivotal moment for you though. That was knowing you and knowing your story, that moment that you had. I mean, it's probably fair to say that that shaped where you are now. Oh, without a doubt, man. Like without a doubt, um, I wish everybody would be able to experience what I experienced because it was so clear to me. You know, here I am 20 years in active addiction, hopeless. Like I literally thought God had forgot about me. I thought, you know, that was, this was my, that was my life. 40 years old, you know, five-time convicted felon, um, never held a job, and instantaneously God filled me with hope and redemption and faith and like I'm sitting in a jail cell happier than I've ever been in my life and you know for the next four months after I got shipped off to DOC I that was my treatment center Department of Corrections was my treatment center it was my four-month treatment center Um, I used every minute of that time to either read to pray to meditate to better myself to exercise to eat well um, you know, when three out of four, if not more, uh, inmates are dumping heroin down their nose, you know, guys next to me dumping heroin down their nose and shooting meth and shooting heroin, whatever they're doing. Um, I used that time. Something was different in me that, you know, from that moment that God revealed himself to me, something was different. I had this, this endless strength to like know that everything was going to be okay. You know, and I had these revelations. You guys might think I'm nuts, but you, you'll know. I mean, you guys know. The ones who know, know. Um, God told me, like, you're going to be good. Give me three years, you know. And that's um, um that I kind of want to dive into a little bit, you know, if you want to go there, because I heard you say something, and this is completely off the cuff here, but uh, you said that I wish this would happen for everybody. But with us, we don't get to pick and choose when that happens. And in your life, it's a fine example of like you, you went 20 years longer than me. But do you think your life would have turned out the way it is now with the life that you have? And I'm gonna go into the relationship you have with your wife. Do you think you and Tiff would have ever gotten together, say this would have been a divine intervention at 25? You know, it's, it's really hard to say. Um, it's really hard to say because it, it, I'm just going to go off just off the off the loop here real quick. But Tiff and I actually were we grew up together yeah. and we actually had our very first kiss. I was 16. She was 18 in Mexico. And I I ditched everybody on that trip and went and hung out with some drug cartel in Mexico getting high on meth when I was that age. Like I was, I got so drunk. I, wow. I got strung out on meth and I, I ditched her and she laughs at me all the time. She, she teased me all the time because I did that. She's, you know, she tells that story. She's like, yeah, he ditched me in Mexico for some <laughs> little stripper chick yeah. and went and hung out with this drug cartel. But, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say, Bob, because, you know, throughout that 20 years, man, the only thing I was passionate about was, <sighs> drugs getting high. I mean, that's all I knew yeah. you know um, 
and, and you know, playing music. I was in a band for from 21 to, to 30, 29. You know, I was passionate about that, but um, I didn't have anything to be passionate about like I do now, you know? Like, well, it, and that's the hard thing, I think. I think for people out there struggling of when is this going to hit me? When is this going to work for me? You know, it's it's keeping the hope and never giving up, because yeah. I think your story is is an example of, you know, going through some hell, years yeah. of hell, yeah. you know, years and years and years of hell, and you through divine intervention, call it what you want, but in this case, divine intervention with God, became ready, yeah, and through becoming ready, you've gotten this life that you have today. Yeah. So the the very first time I ever felt passion for something <clears throat> I was sitting on the yard in in, in Douglas Arizona um, on Mojave Yard and I had this moment where I looked around at the yard and saw a bunch of dudes and I'm like there are a bunch of fucked up people in here and I'm gonna I'm gonna come back in and I'm gonna help these people or I'm gonna help this population and uh, you know it took a couple years for me to get into the field but when I did, that's the first place I worked at was at a place that was able to help those individuals and work with probation, with federal pretrial and probation, Department of Corrections and those people, man. And, you know, God planted that seed in me, man, and it, it's come to fruition, you know, because to this day, we get to work with those with those folks. Yeah. And that's those are my people. You know, I mean, those, I was the guy that didn't have health care insurance that, you know, didn't have a Frank Eisenhower or Bobby Cording to call and say, hey, I got access, can you help me? You know, there were, I didn't know those guys existed. You know, yeah. and you know, what we have at Buena Vista, man, with, with all the, you know, the campuses we have and all the, you know, the people we can help, man, it, God showed up. And he gave us a great opportunity, he gave me a great opportunity to be able to help these individuals because he, he planted that seed in me, man, and here we are. Yeah, So. 100%. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah. Um, so, so knowing you through, I mean, how we met was to me divine intervention. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it was it was one of those moments where I remember the first time we sat, I was like, okay, you know, you're my people. Yeah. Um, and I could tell from the moment we met and the the heart that you have and the the true genuineness about you, um, we share. Yeah. You know that that we we truly love. Like, yes, this is a job, but it's not a job. Yeah. You know, like we we eat, sleep and breathe this, yeah. you know, um, what does it mean to you today from being where you were at five years ago to where you sit today with this opportunity? God is good. Like, I mean, we're coming right off, right off Thanksgiving. You know, we talked about it last week, what we're grateful for, you know, and we have all these blessings and I mean, your story alone, like you shouldn't be here. Yeah. Your story alone, you should be dead. Yeah. Um, the fact that you went at, through everything in your childhood to the next 20 years of, of constant drug abuse. Yeah. To being able to survive that, to going to jail, to going to prison, to being able to be out now helping people coming out of prison. And I'm getting to see it firsthand with your friend. Yeah. You know, getting them into treatment, getting the light. And then you saying this morning we're, we're driving and you say, you know, holy cow, he's posting about God. You know, and like you get to have that direct impact on people today. Yeah. You know, that's, it's, it's mind blowing. It's magic, man. Um, it's, uh, I'm speechless, man. I, I mean, it, it, we're blessed. Like this is not work. Yeah. We like, we're employed, 
but this is not work. Yeah. Like this is, I do this shit for free. Yeah. You know, we do, we do it for free. Yeah. You know? So, I, I mean, life is, is grand. I mean, I spent a week in Oahu last week, you know? Like, with the turtles. With the turtles, man. Yeah. yeah. You know? Doing a little scuba diving. Yeah. Frankie, thank you so much for getting vulnerable today uh, and sharing your story. I mean, the the man that you are, the man that I know, is is a selfless man um, who truly cares about helping people. And it, it's been, you know, I've been telling you a lot lately, but I'm super grateful to be right here alongside with you in, in, in this company and, and doing what we love. So I appreciate you. I love you. Um, I love you too, Bob. It's, it's, a, it's a blessing to work with you too, brother. It is. Yeah. So. Blessed. Yeah. So, guys, thank you for joining us this time on the Buena Vista podcast. This is Frank Eisenhower and Bobby Cording. Uh, until next time, you guys stay safe, stay loving each other, and be safe. God got us, then we go be all right.